Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live. It is my privilege and honor tonight to welcome our very special guest, Robert Joy, from countless movies and TV shows, uh, notably Land of the Dead, The Hills Have Eyes, Amityville 3D, and on and on. Robert, thank you so much for being here with us. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm very happy to be here. It's an honor. Thanks, Viz. It's an absolute pleasure of ours. And let's get started. We have a lot of questions for you. Okay. Your, your first professional credits go all the way back to 1973. You are a veteran in the industry right now. Tell us how it all started for you. How did you get into acting? What was your biggest break? And so, and how did just how did it all begin? Yeah, it's it's actually an interesting question because I was at university studying English. I didn't study theater or acting or anything like that. And I got a chance to be in a, a professional company um, back in 1972, touring in a in a couple of vans uh, around Newfoundland, which is where I'm from, Newfoundland, Canada. And we did a British farce at night and Wizard of Oz in the daytime. So uh, it was my first uh, playing the cowardly line. It was my first uh, experience with you know creature makeup. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. I hadn't thought about that before, actually. But then uh, one thing led to another. Uh, I ended up going to England to go to university there. I won a scholarship to go there. And I got a chance to join people who had been part of that Newfoundland tour. They put together a, a comedy group called Codco. And uh, we wrote our own material. And we had a very successful stage career and we actually did a television show for the CBC, a one-off thing. And uh, it was great for like three years. At the end of that, I got a chance to audition for a production of The Diary of Anne Frank in Toronto. Wow. And um, the thing that made it different was that Eli Wallach was going to come up with Ann Jackson, his wife, and Roberta Wallach, his his daughter, to play the Frank family mm. because mm. he knew the producer of this theater who was starting this brand new theater in Toronto with this production with these, the famous Wallach family. And suddenly there I am acting opposite Eli Wallach and his family. And because it went well in Toronto, I got invited to New York. And that was the big break. And the rest, so, and the rest is yeah. history, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to go to New York and sort of have a job when you get there with Eli Wallach, you know, it was amazing. That's a good start right there. Uh, like I told you just before we went live, I first saw you in Amityville 3D, okay? And then that came out in 83. And then two years later, you got a co-starring role with Madonna in, on Desperately Seeking Susan. Uh, you just told us how you got into acting, into New York. Once you got your roles on various TV shows, would you say Amityville, then Desperately Seeking Susan, was one of the pivot moments in your early career that helped escalate the rest of your career? Uh, it was interesting. It put me into the the genre of horror movies for the first time. But the the pivot into film happened earlier than that. I've been because I did uh, that Eli Wallach production of Diary of Anne Frank. John Guare 
a playwright and uh, award-winning screenwriter came to, he was a friend of Eli's and came to the show. And um, I got an audition for Louis Malle, the French director, and John Guerre for the film Atlantic City. Oh. Uh, with Burt Lancaster. <laughs> and that, that was back in 1979, 1980. And that was the pivot, basically. So... I did this really prestigious film, was nominated uh, for a screenplay Oscar, I think. And uh, then because of that, uh, Milos Forman hired me in Ragtime. And um, the Amityville 3D was the third step in that progression, you might say, right? Yeah. Well, I said, oh, my God, uh, Amityville 3 And it was weird because I'd had to audition for the other two films, but by then... Richard Fleischer and Dino De Laurentiis, uh, the producer of, uh, of Amityville, um, made me an offer. I didn't know what to do. With, I, I'd always had to audition for things. Lord. So it was really weird to get an offer to do Atlantic, I mean, Amityville 3D and the promise of going down to Mexico City to shoot it. And Dino De Laurentiis is uh, is uh, sort of a legend in his own right as well. It's like, you know, how do you turn down an offer from him? Uh, right. He also directed King Kong in 1976 as well. Yeah. Uh, so now looking back, I just I don't want to stay too long on Amityville, but looking back at the cast, okay, a young Lord Laughlin, uh, a young Meg Ryan, uh, yourself, it had a talented cast. And Meg Ryan, I mean, it's uh, one that stands out probably prominently, who became such a huge star. Did you enjoy filming Amityville 3D? Was it, a, you know, a pleasant experience? It was. It took a little bit of getting used to uh, because I kept thinking uh, I, I didn't get to test myself with an audition, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this director doesn't know what how I'm going to do this role. So after the first couple of days, I felt much better. Okay. And Richard Fleischer, I saw what I could do, and uh, we got along great. And I never got to work with Laurie Laughlin or Meg Ryan because wow. I was the scientist. You were the scientist that came in to figure it out. So I got to meet Tony Roberts, who I'd known from all the Woody Allen films, and Tess Harper, who mm -hmm. had won it, I guess, for that uh, film with um, Robert Duvall. Uh, and Candy Clark. So I was, I was kind of hanging out in Mexico City with the older crowd. <laughs> uh, I had a great time. One question in regards to Desperately Seeking Susan, and then we're going to move on. It was around the time where Madonna was breaking out, 84, 85. How crazy was the atmosphere surrounding having Madonna as your co-star on Desperately Seeking Susan? It wasn't as crazy as you might think because she kind of broke between the wrap of shooting and the release of the movie. Ah. Uh, during the shoot, for example, I mean, this is a sign of it, for example. we I'd be picked up in the morning uh, by a station wagon and then we'd go up to the Apple Health Club on 56th Street in Manhattan and pick up Madonna and then we go up to Harlem and shoot in the Magic Club scenes, right? At the Audubon Ballroom, which is the same ballroom that uh, Malcolm X was shot in. But um, it was, uh, she wasn't a star yet. She'd had one 
uh, song, you know, on MTV, and you know, it was it got, it gotten a lot of notice. It was the but year she, after that infamous VMAs of her doing "Like a Virgin." The whole, you know, that's it was it was before that. See, yeah. it was before that whole explosion mm -hmm. of fame. Uh, but we knew she was, you know hot stuff, we knew that she was coming in to do a, an acting role as a person who'd never done an acting role before. So there was an excitement about that and a certain nervousness about how we were to arrange ourselves around this uh, person from the pop world. Yeah. And it worked great. Susan Seidelman um, basically encouraged all of us to uh, adjust our performances to her. Okay. Right, because she, her, her genius in that role was to not force anything and to stay in her comfort zone. So it was really up to us to adjust to that rather than to worry about our own comfort zones. You know what I mean? It all worked out awesome in the end. Uh, yeah. Now, I want to ask you as an actor, uh, you had all these roles, television, then you would have these film roles. Was it ever frustrating for you as an actor to never get, uh, for a while, that job security TV show where you know you can rely on it? And that eventually did come for you in, what, 2005? No, in, uh, in, no, around 2005, when you got the role of Sid Hammerback on CSI New York. You were on there for over eight years, 165 episodes. Is there a difference going from audition to audition, from movie to movie, TV to TV, rather than having that secure role that lasted over eight years for you? Yeah, it's a total game changer. Any actor will tell you that. When you get a series role, there's a certain, and you might not have even noticed that you've been carrying a burden of stress about the insecurity of your profession. Uh, but when it's lifted off your shoulders, you notice that it's yeah, gone. Yeah. Let me put it that way. There, I was very lucky even before that, that I could go from job to job and cobble together enough money to live pretty uh, comfortably. And, you know, to, uh, there were a couple of lean periods, you know, when the credit card debt would go up uh, and you might have to borrow money from your parents or something. But uh, mostly, I mean, here's the blessing. You know, I came to New York in 1978 and never had to work in a restaurant. And I still can't believe it, you know, because things got, things got uh, thin there for a while, but never so bad that I had to take another job. So I know how fortunate I was even then. But the, the stress of going from job to job, which was totally bearable in my case, for, for it to be gone altogether after CSI New York was an incredible gift. When you, when you did get the role for CSI, did you know initially how long it was going to be for? How... No, not at all. Uh, for the first two or three years, I was in pretty much every episode, mm -hmm. but I'd have to sign a new contract every two episodes. So I'd sign a contract, I'd go in, sign a bunch of contracts for two episodes, and then after they were done, I'd sign another two. Oh, well, I think we lost you there. Let's see, Phil, unfreeze. 
Sorry about that, guys. Technology. Let's see if he'll uh, unfreeze. If not, I will call him back. Let me try calling him back. Bear with me, guys. My apologies. Let's see. We'll get him back. Just hang on, guys. Mm. Gotta love the internet. Must have been the talk of CSI New York. No, it looks like he's lost internet connection. We'll try him back. We are with our, well, we were with our guest, Robert Joy. Okay, he just said, okay, let me message him back. Uh, okay, let me call him right back. He says, waiting for my call back. Let me give him a message here. Let me tell him to give me a video call. Let's see if it works that way, if he tries calling me. Obviously, his messages are coming through, so the internet is working, so I don't know why the video disconnected. But we'll try, we'll keep trying to get him back on. Oh, that's a good sound. Hey, Robert. Hey, we got you back. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so it's okay. That's technology for you. That's yeah. technology. We got you back. Everyone's cool. Everyone's still here. So you were talking about CSI New York, the job security, going from two episodes to two episodes. And when did you finally... Did they ever? I mean, I, I. Yeah, they did. What What happened was after about three seasons of that, uh, they had had to uh, do without me a couple of times because I got film role here and a film role there, and I couldn't turn them down. Yeah. Uh, so I'd go and do the film, and they'd have to find a temporary replacement to come in and do the autopsies. <laughs> and uh, after, I think it was three seasons of that. I, through my agent, made an overture to them saying, I will increase my commitment to you if you will increase your commitment to me. 
And uh, when uh, you go from being a guest star to being a regular, your salary goes up and the number of episodes you're guaranteed goes up. So that was the real uh, threshold to go through to take even more stress off my shoulders. So it, it was an amazing gig. I mean, it was the best gig in in Los Angeles, at, as far as I was concerned, out of an eight or nine day shooting schedule per episode, I'd do maybe two days, <laughs> right? I, I, uh, I'll tell you what, I'm a New Yorker and I love these New York shows that are filmed in LA. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I, me too. And they have a, a scene in Central Park and they do it on some kind of uh, the lot, you know. Yeah. Uh, a lot and it was like crazy it was crazy okay so now in 2005 you land the role of charlie in land of the dead walk us through how you first met george romero i had met him uh, while i still lived in new york uh i auditioned for and got the role in the dark half Mm. timothy hutton and uh, that went very well. It was like a two-scene role, and then the character seems to appear later. I didn't even have to be in that scene, his death scene, which was really grisly, and it was kind of a great, great role. And uh, it was it gave George a taste of what I could do. So even though the role of Charlie was kind of Uh, written to be kind of like Lennian of Mice and Men, like this big hulking guy, slightly uh, um, mentally off, you know? Slow. It's slow, mentally slow. And so I could tell when I walked into the first audition that the producers who were sitting around George were skeptical. It's like, what's this skinny, you know, guy little guy doing in here for this role we thought it would be some big kind of linebacker sort of guy and um but i did the audition and you know george fought for me i think i had to come in and do a callback and convince some more people that's right and and, uh that's what happened and george is that kind of a collaborator that once you're on the project he is on the one hand, giving you all kinds of room to invent on your own, but on the other hand, very interested in every detail. Uh, you might remember Charlie wears a little wool mm-hmm. cap, and he said, yeah, that's what we want. We don't want the other kind of cap or any of the other kind of hats they tried on. So, you know, George is at the costume fitting, you know, and he said, here's what we should do, and he comes and starts picking at the hat. He says, can you come bring your scissors over here and let's have a hole in the hat right here. <laughs> and so I'm thinking this guy is so into the, the detail and the feel of it and to make it as uh, authentic as he can possibly make it. I'm such an admirer of, of George and his work. Yeah. How did it feel for you to be a part of his Dead series? I mean, that's what makes him so famous that's i mean he is the grandfather the father of the modern day zombie and to be in the dead series uh first question is how did that feel and second question is did he explain to you in any way a timeline in relation to the other dead movies night 
Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. Is this a decade after? Is there even is it even in the same universe? Is it a different world? How did he explain it to you? He he gave me the impression, as I recall, that it was later than the other ones, like they're in kind of chronological order. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end, the uh, feeling that they're all going to have to head into the Arctic, you know, to get away from the the plague sort of thing, uh, it it sort of promised uh, a move north. Uh, but it was in the future, um, and he had, obviously, I think, a kind of a political, as he, all, he did in all his uh, dead movies, a political uh, a theme to mm-hmm. play about uh, people with wealth separating themselves from the general population and people barricading themselves. It was kind of another comment on uh, racism and classism oh, yeah. in, in America. So uh, it just took it that extra step into the future. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it was a fascinating thing. I mean, you, I, you felt amazing to be in. To, to answer your first question, it felt amazing to be in the Dead series. It, it felt like uh, uh, you're you're in the inner temple, the inner sanctum, you know, of something that's very. Uh, iconic. I can in the I can imagine you're like part of this series now that is forever. Gonna, it's it's always going to be there. It's always going to be talked about. And yeah, I totally understand what you say about the class system. You have Dennis Hopper, who is leading the rich and the elite, who are living luxuriously. And even in the protected city, you have the the Skid Row part, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Uh, did you watch, uh, I assume you've watched Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead. Okay. Uh, how do you feel about how George took the zombies in the direction he took them in Land of the of the Dead, where the one zombie is actually showing intelligence, leads the zombies across the river into the city? How'd you like that take on it? I, I liked it. He felt the pressure of other uh, dire- directors and filmmakers almost co-opting the zombie world and and speeding up the zombies and stuff like that. He felt in a way that, wait a second, let's do it right. Yep. Uh, and that what you feel, I think, in Land of the Dead is this evolution. And you kind of watch it happen in front of your eyes. It's not all of a sudden they can... Uh, get on motorcycles and run around, you know, but it, they they slowly evolve into a situation where they d- kind of discover, it's like the primitive man discovering fire or something like that, you know, discoveries are made along the way and in the audience you get to watch them happen. So that that made perfect sense to me. And, you know, he's an inventive guy. He's not going to do the same thing in every movie. Yeah, and he's definitely shown that even you know throughout the dead movies, Night of the Dead is you know different from Dawn and it's different from Day, and then finally Land of the Dead. They're all different. Uh, it was a great cast in Land of the Dead. Yourself, John Leguizamo, Leguizamo, sorry, Simon Baker, and then of course Dennis Hopper. Uh, what was the atmosphere like in the set? Did everybody get along? Was there cohesion? Did George have to step in? 
uh, when it came to the actors and, you know, try to keep things balanced? Or did you guys, you know, have a good synergy on your own? I think we had a pretty good synergy on our own. The, the, the culture of the set, if you want to put it that way, was very much encouraging uh, for, you know, inventiveness and playing with each other. And uh, if there was ever something that didn't seem right, George would comment. But he didn't really have to do much uh, wrangling of the cast. The cast had a pretty good idea of how, how to make it work. And uh, every now and again, something unexpected would happen, which he would welcome. And I remember the scene when I first meet John Leguizamo's character, mm -hmm. Charlie meets him. And uh, you'll notice in the movie, and this was not in the rehearsal, John Leguizamo smoking a cigarette and he's calling me stupid. And uh, I'm, you know, kind of cringing at it, but trying not to react. And he, he throws his cigarette at me and hits me in the chest. Oh, and I thought... Wow, man, this guy is the live wire. And uh, that that kind of thing, uh, I mean, we all kind of loved it. He's a very spontaneous uh, performer. And, you know, it's like having a live wire, you know, like an uncovered electric electricity on the set. And that makes it exciting. I love John Leguizamo. He's just, I, I could totally see him just going off and doing his own stuff, like what you just explained. Did George Romero uh, bring in Tom Savini for any of the makeup work or for anything for Land of the Dead? Um, I always worked with Christopher Nelson, he was my artist. And uh, because my makeup was so uh, elaborate, uh, I'd have to come in, you know, before everybody else kind of. And, uh, and Christopher and I had a relationship that way. But I remember meeting Tom Savini, and I remember him sort of being around as a kind of consultant. Uh, but I couldn't tell you about how that worked. I think he came in to oversee some of the big scenes, maybe that scene where everybody ends up in the water mm -hmm. and, you know, he had to, he had to make sure the logistics were all going to work and maybe he had to make sure <laughs> the makeup wasn't going to come off in the water. I don't know, but it was, uh, he, he, I remember him being around, but I don't remember much more than that. Now we know George Romero likes to film all his movies in Pittsburgh. Was Land of the Dead filmed in Pittsburgh as well? No, and when you ask uh, what it felt like on the set, it felt cold <laughs> because we shot it in Toronto really? in the winter and we had a lot of bad weather, like really way sub-zero temperatures and uh, we lost some shooting days because of the weather and it created logistical problems like crazy. We had these big things that kind of looked like jet engines mm -hmm that were set up around where the uh, actors chairs were to rest and everything because basically while you were on camera you were freezing most of the shoot was night scenes yes. right? so you're in the middle of the night the coldest part of the 24-hour period and just freezing your ass off and then you were standing in front of these big kind of jet engine heaters trying to get a little heat back into your hands and feet before you went back to work. When you read the script, how did you feel that uh, Charlie was going to be on the surviving side of the movie and not uh, face death? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I like that because when you're in a, 
a movie like that where you realize there might be another movie afterwards, you always think, well, if I survive, maybe I'll come back. You never know. You never know. Now, we're going to skip a little bit to uh, uh, The Hills Have Eyes, but portraying uh, someone surviving in a post-apocalyptic city as opposed to a nuclear test town, uh, what's the differences? I mean, what, as far as prep and all that, when it comes to you and getting ready for the role itself? The role in uh, Land of the Dead was so incredibly different. The role of Charlie, you got is is a very sympathetic role. Mm-hmm. His backstory is very easy to get behind. Uh, you know, his fight for survival is a fight. Uh, kind of to keep good things alive, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, lizards uh, fight for survival is an entirely malign and malevolent uh, struggle to kill as much as you can just to you know get through the day, if you know what I mean. Yeah, he's willing to uh, you know try to kill a baby at the end, you know, and butcher a baby. So we're talking about two very different characters to begin with. And uh, it was kind of a relief in a way to realize that he's not going to survive the movie. (laughs) 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 That was a really hard sequence to shoot. We shot that in Morocco and the temperatures were like 115 degrees. And, uh, you know, crew members were dropping sometimes, you know, from heat frustration. It was... wow. Well, it's really tough, and the, even the the makeup artists had a hard time keeping the makeup on their faces. It would just kind of run off and melt off. Now, you've worked with some of the greats. You've worked with, for example, Denzel Washington, Donald Sutherland, uh, the late James Gandolfini. Uh, I mean, how, how do you process that with working with so many great actors, as yourself you're a great actor as well uh, i know what you mean it's very daunting i was kind of lucky that the first big role i had was with on stage was with eli wallach mm-hmm. and i'd been such an admirer of him from uh, all those sergio leone movies and from so many movies that he did i mean he was already a very famous actor in my book and a character actor so i was really looking up to him and then on the first day of work you cannot sustain hero worship because you're at work. Mm-hmm. So you, when you come in, you have that moment of saying, oh, my God, it's Eli Wallach, it's Burt Lancaster, it's J- James Cagney, for God's sake, in ragtime. And, um, and But you can't sustain it and do your work at the same time. Yeah. And something, everybody on the set realizes that when the time comes. And once you get down to work, it all drops away. It has to drop away. And uh, and they're invested. I mean, uh, the really great actors are invested in it dropping away because they don't want that sense of hero worship to screw up the scene. Totally get it. Totally understand. Uh, now, a year after Land of the Dead, you go on to what we just talked about, another, uh, well, a reboot from a cult classic, and that's, of course, The Hills Have Eyes with Wes Craven. 
what was uh was that your first encounter with west craven if not what was your first encounter and how did it go no that was my first encounter and the truth is uh he was very much uh a presence offset he wasn't hands-on as far as i could see now maybe if you talk to alexander and his collaborator there but these two french guys uh who directed the the movie, uh, uh, mostly Alexander Aha, and I can't remember the writer's name, but they they were through the casting process, and so all all my uh, connection was with them, and they had a very uh, focused vision, uh, I'm sure, in consultation with Wes Craven and with his approval, but. You know, they had a free range over the movie, and I, I guess Wes was happy with what they did. So, so Wes Craven in the re, in the reboot was pretty much hands off. He was a writer, he was a producer. Uh, yeah. Was there any so pressure? He would have been hands on with the director, I'm sure. Oh yeah, but yeah, he wasn't hands on with the actors. So okay, that. yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Uh, now, was there any pressure that you felt because Wes uh, did the original? And now he came back as a producer writer for the reboot. Uh, was there any pressure from anywhere to kind of live up to the original? Uh, because maybe Wes Craven is involved in both projects. Did you guys, as the actors on set, feel any kind of pressure? Never. I must say, uh, uh, as much as possible, it seemed like we were doing something new. And to, to read the script and uh, to hear our director say, what did he say? Uh, I want it to be brutal and uncompromising, he said in his French accent. And, you know, he had this insistence that it was going to be as brutal and uncompromising as he could make it. It was, uh, uh, he, he was really committed. You know, he's, he's a a brilliant kind of driven young fellow. I mean, he's not such a young fellow anymore. That was a while ago. <laughs> but uh, I'm just saying that uh, we all felt his commitment and his focus. And it was pretty straightforward what we had to do to fill that vision. And not unlike, it was like the, op the polar opposite of the freezing cold of Toronto. We had the searing heat of uh, Morocco, Morocco's desert to deal with. So in a funny way, those weather conditions create this kind of solidarity. Like we have to, in a way, fight to survive ourselves. Together. I mean, was that, was that uh, difficult? You know, the conditions under which we shot were very difficult. And we had to dig in and put our nose to the grindstone and get it done. And we were very proud at the end of every night, say, we got that, we got that, this is great, you know. And we'd go home and sleep the day away and then go out again in the night. Is there any way why Morocco and not, like, the desert of Nevada? I mean, do you know why Morocco? No idea. Yeah, I've, uh... I know it had something to do with budget, right? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. got something to do with saving money by using a European crew. you got to remember the... Uh, director and the, uh, his associate, I'm so embarrassed that I can't remember the other fellow's name. But anyway, they they were from France. Mm -hmm. 
So the uh, some of the uh, department heads that they wanted to use were European. And so it kind of made sense in that way. Um, and the Moroccan crew uh, members, um, I have a feeling that there is a budgetary consideration there. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, it has to be. It has to be. Uh, a lot of people don't know this. But Greg Nicotero had a part in The Hills Have Eyes. Do you remember any interaction with Greg at all? Uh, well, he, he was there for the design uh, meeting for the makeup in North Hollywood. And he had designed Charlie's makeup, too. You know, for the Dead. Yeah, I mean, Greg Nicotero came, was, I think, one of the assistant makeup artists on Night of the Living Dead. He, he worked with with um, George Romero in Pittsburgh a lot. Oh yeah, they've, they've, yeah, oh yeah. You know, so there, and of course now he's gone on to do The Walking Dead and everything as a producer, but he, um, so yeah, he, he was very much present for the design phase of all the makeup and then would make appearances in a supervisory kind of way once we're shooting, but I, I don't remember him being in the movie. Do you remember what the uh, role was? I do not remember the role. Uh, during my research for tonight, he is listed in the cast. Uh, you know, Greg Nicotero to this day loves to put on the makeup as a zombie, you know, on yeah. The Walking Dead. He just yeah. loves it. He loves doing it. So he probably has a very passing role on The Hills Have Eyes, where he got to put on a whole bunch of makeup where you would never recognize him. But I was very surprised. I, he was listed in the cast, and I thought that was really cool. And I had no idea that Greg Nicotero had anything to do with Land of the Dead. So, or his While we're makeup on Land day. of the Dead for a second, you know Simon Pegg? Mm -hmm. He was a big uh, uh, admirer of George Romero, and, you know, he had done Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. So he and a friend of his came to do land of the dead you know they're in the movie uh in the kind of skid row section where there there's a kind of a affair and people are yep. in cages and stuff he's one of the zombies in the cage oh god <laughs> i wonder i don't know if he he has a credit on the movie but it was a, a goof for him to do you know he really wanted to do it he and so he went through the trouble of, you know, going through all the makeup and spending a, a long shooting day doing that stuff. Now, that's, you see, that's why I love doing these interviews. You get all this fascinating information. Uh, now, after such a, a long and ongoing distinguished career, where does horror hold a place in your heart in, in regards to uh, films, TV that you like to appear in? Uh, you know, I'm open. You know, you're talking to a character actor here, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm uh, available for work is the the way I think about it. And uh, whatever jobs come my way, I like to do them. I mean, typically, I'm not a person who likes to say no. Uh, the job would have to be pretty bad for me to say no to it. And so horror has become a, a kind of a wonderful genre for me to venture into. It, to be quite honest, wasn't a genre that I would buy tickets for and go to the movie theater and watch very often. You know, I remember having a very strong reaction to um, 
The Exorcist when I saw it. I oh, thought, oh, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, I thought, I'm, I'm not sure I want to be seeing these kind of movies. But uh, the more I got into the genre, the more I appreciated the the genre and could see the genius of it. And then, you know, we're working with people like George, um, uh, it, it makes it very pleasurable to explore the genre. So I've done a, a couple of things since then that are uh, similarly kind of exploring that genre, right? Uh, and I'm always happy to do it. Uh, it veers into science fiction sometimes, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, uh, you know, the difference now between horror and sort of futuristic thriller are, you know, it's, they're, it's, they're, they're yeah. getting blurred, the borders, right? So, What do you think about the progression of uh, horror through the years? Like from Amity, 3D... Uh, which was, it is a horror movie, um, to the amount, I don't know if you watched the amount of gore that is being allowed now on television in regards to shows like The Walking Dead or even in the movies. What do you think about that progression? I know it's all possible now as opposed to, you know, back in the 80s and 90s with the, the advent of CGI. They can go nuts, crazy. So how do you feel about the evolution of horror over the past several decades. What I like is that it's blurring the boundaries between horror and other genres. Like when Get Out uh, came out, you know, and you have, uh, uh, you know, uh, another exploration of horror as a kind of a political thriller and sort of a a suspense movie, you know, that doesn't depend so much on creatures and stuff. But then, no, I, I kind of really like where horror is going because it's not insisting on the same cliches that got it there. Mm -hmm. It's going into kind of an unknown territory. And so you got something like uh, Stranger Things on television, which has some of the, uh, a lot of the uh, aspects of stand by me yeah you know of a different kind of a story uh but then mixed in with the horror genre it's more and psychological yeah but it's still got creatures it's mm -hmm. still got gore it's still scary uh, and that just makes everybody richer uh yeah yeah it's entertainment. At the end of the day, it's entertainment. That's that's why yeah. fans watch it. Were you guys allowed liberties uh, in the reboot of The Hills Have Eyes that you know West did not have back in 1977, and we, you guys were told, you know, a bigger. You had a bigger budget, obviously. Do you know if the sh if the movie took bigger risks or chances? Well, there was one thing that happened with the uh, makeup design, and you probably know this already, but, you know, Greg, Greg Nicotero's makeup designs are pretty much mm. real. Mm -hmm. They're, uh, his whole studio, no matter if he's the designer or just overlooking the designers, but they're, they're real. They're not digital. No. So it was a big change to have the ruby makeup be digital there's the character ruby that my character 
chases after in the final sequence of the movie and I'm going to get you, you know, I'm, I'm looking to kill her and, and the tables are turned, which was freaky for me because my daughter's name is Ruby. So around, but anyway, but there was a big deal for them and, and Greg had to play this, I think, very uh, with finesse that she had digital eye, cha- eye shape changes that were you know, some kind of trick, you know, some kind of digital trick to make her eyes seem yeah. uh, different. And uh, that was, you know, so that was something that couldn't have been done in the original Wes Craven version. And they, you know, so they didn't go to hell with it and doing all kinds of weird things, but they did that. They also did, um, you know, I had a kind of a tail, that's why they're called lizard. lizard. A bandolero with all bullets and everything and I could use it to flatten the tires of cars you know because it had spikes in it or I could use it as a weapon mm-hmm. so when I used it as a weapon that was an exhausting scene to shoot and took a lot of rehearsal the fight scene you know the fight scenes I should say that led to my um, the, uh, going the culmination of the movie at the end uh, and I noticed when I saw it, I wasn't sure what this was going to happen, but I had to deploy the tail in several of those moves. And I noticed in the post-production, they would add extra links. They would add extra length and uh, uh, movements to the tail uh, with CGI. Yeah. But they were very subtle and uh, spare with it. They they didn't go overboard with that kind of stuff. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, now, after a day of shooting a character like Lizard, uh, all the makeup, when the makeup comes off and you're done for the day, do you have any technique to put the character that you've been playing all day aside uh, until you're ready to pick it back up again? How do you separate yourself? You know, the biggest help is uh, human need. Uh, I'm a person who gets hungry after four hours. So at the end of a shooting day, I'd be really hungry. And I'd have to get, you know, and the meal would be what would bring me back down. Would you eat alone or would you guys all eat together? Uh, sometimes we'd eat together, uh, sometimes alone, which now when I look back on it, it's such a privilege now to be able to sit down opposite somebody and eat a meal. But yeah, I would sometimes uh, eat with the other cast members and sometimes eat alone. What would, but, uh, what would you say yeah. was uh, the most challenging part? You just talked about the physical exhaustion with that tail scene about playing lizard. Yeah. That was it. I I come from uh, Newfoundland, Canada, right? So I have a tolerance for cold, but I don't have much of a tolerance for extreme heat. Mm, I'm with you. And you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so I remember a couple of times when I thought, wow, you really got to dig deep to get back out there when you're flat out exhausted. And then you got to suck it up and go at it again. Uh, and that scene in the trailer uh, was very hot day indoors with not a lot of, it was like in a big garage, like a warehouse, and there were hot lights on us all. And I remember feeling very worried about the baby 
there was a baby in that scene. Wow, yeah. Right? Yeah. And at a certain shots, the baby was a doll. I was much more comfortable with that. But when the baby was a baby, wow. it was tough because of the heat. And then in between takes, if the baby started to cry, they usually have twins for that kind of casting. And I think they might have had. I remember feeling the stress so much that the the mother or the caregiver for the baby was there. And the, the stress of not wanting to do more takes than necessary or not uh, yeah, yeah. just check this baby to more noise and heat than was necessary. I thought that really bothered me, I remember. So that that was maybe the hardest day on that movie. Wow. Do you think Lizard was just a pseudo leader or was he just feared by his peers, the fellow miners and so on? What do you think his role within the group? How would you define it? I'm trying to remember, didn't Billy Zane play a character who was kind of more the leader? Now, he was a kind, certainly a kind of leader. It felt like he was the commando yeah. of the mutants. It's, it's a long time ago now, so I haven't seen the movie in a while. But Definitely, as far as violence goes, he was yeah. right up there. Yeah, so it felt on that score that he was the commando who would go in and get the meat, if you know what I mean. He would go in and and uh, win the uh, battle that had to be fought, but I didn't get the feeling that he was the brains behind the operation. Okay. Now, there was a sequel to the reboot of The Hills Have Eyes. Do you like how they did it, or would you like to have been a part of it if they brought back some of the original cast from the first one? The only way I could have been a part of it is in a flashback. Exactly. If they'd done a prequel, which I would have jumped at. I would have loved to do more of Lizard. But I wasn't in the sequel, and I will say I never did see it. So I don't know. <laughs> I never watched the sequel. I'm kind of scared to go to those movies. I'm telling you. it's like. Well, we've had so many people on here who say that horror is, uh, well, first of all, it's absolutely not scary to film. Obviously, you're there, the cameras are there, everything is going on. But they have the most fun watching it. And a lot of people, when they actually see the final product, uh, are legitimately scared, even though they were right there shooting it. It's a completely different experience. Have you felt that yourself? Oh, my God, yes. I mean, there's, there's, uh, well, for one thing, uh, the kind of roles I get, I'm not in every scene. So the scenes I'm not in are totally new to me when I'm there on opening night with my popcorn. It's like I'm just as scared as the next person. But mostly, I must say, I feel admiration at an opening night screening uh, for <laughs> for how well it's put together. Because you got to remember, when you're out on a mountain ledge covered in dust and exhausted somewhere in Morocco at 115 degrees, you're thinking, this can't look very good. It certainly feels difficult, you know. How is this going to, you know, be exciting for the audience? And then you see how it's edited together and the music is added and and maybe that uh, the tale, which I was doing my best to make look terrifying, actually does look terrifying with that little... 
CGI extension on it. And uh, I'm, I'm just so filled with admiration for, for watching it come together. Do you feel editors, and this is just a general entertainment industry question, editors in the movie TV business don't get nearly the credit that they deserve. They do such a fantastic job. They're the ones that put the final product together, sound, video, all the CGI that's given to them. Do you feel they're a little, don't get the credit that they deserve? Well, I don't know. They they certainly do get credit during the award season, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and the picture editor gets particular credit, and that, that person should. I mean, there's no question about it. They should get all the credit they possibly can because, uh, you know, the idea that they wouldn't get as much credit as the star actor is ridiculous because they're such a crucial part of the, uh, the collaboration. But you got to remember, not only the picture editor, but the composer writing the score so you know, so uh, the sound editor, um, you know, there's all kinds of effects, digital effects that come after the shoot. And it's kind of a, uh, amazing uh, the extent of the collaboration. And it's especially impressive for a stage actor like me, who is usually, you know, I mean, there's designers and stuff on stage, too. But when you step onto the stage, what you're presenting to the audience is right there mm -hmm. that night. And when you're performing in front of a camera, what's presented to the audience, half of it hasn't even happened yet. Exactly. You know, exactly. you do your stuff and then it's put into somebody else's hands and put into somebody else's hands. And it's kind of a miracle when it comes together into a, a genius piece of art. You know, it's like, wow, yeah. that's it. The final Great. product, you said it, you nailed it on the head. The final product is a work of art. Yeah. Uh, do you, in your roles as Lizard or in Charlie and Land of the Dead, uh, do you like to do some stunts on your own or do do they employ stuntmen? Uh, just for you in particular on the roles that you've had throughout your career. If I can do a stunt without injury, I want to do it myself. Like... Uh... Uh, so I remember early on in shooting Lizard, Lizard had to jump from the top of the trailer to the ground. And uh, I, I thought about doing it myself, and I, I think I, that ended up being a stuntman. And then I had to land, right, mm. as I fall. So I had to jump anyway, but not from such a high height. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, so you end up, Finding a kind of a compromise where you do as much as you possibly can. And I remember the fight scene, for example, I would put on the body armor, whatever, under the costume and try to make it uh, work. There was one sequence close to the end of that fight where I had to fall backwards on rocks. And that that was tough. And I had these armored plates, you know, this kind of, kind of body armor that... Uh, riot police would use i guess and then i had to fall backwards on the rocks and i said it's it's not quite working for me in rehearsal because the the rocks still could be felt through the armor because oh, we you know we so we had to figure out a way to take some of the protrusions you know some of the things that were sticking up yeah you know, to smooth it out a little bit Dude. so i would 
for myself. Do directors try to encourage actors to try to do as much of their stunts as possible, or is it that changes from director to director? There- it changes from director to director, and you'll just as often find a director who doesn't want you to do stunts. Okay. Just imagine, like, if I had hurt my back falling back on the rocks. Yeah, everything shut down. I can't go to work. Not a, yeah, I can't go to work the next day and they'd have to shut down. It's like, no, nah, you're absolutely right. It's So they're, they're more likely to be cautious, okay. to be daring on that score. And, and I think you'll find that actors who are famous for doing their own stunts have to really fight for that right to do it. Oh, yeah, I've heard, I've heard that. Especially as, if they're stars, right? Exactly. Exactly. If they go down, the whole show goes down or the movie goes down. Now, one last question. We're out. We are almost out of time. You, like we have, I've said repeatedly, you've had this long, illustrious career. Uh, do you ever say to yourself, you know what? I, I look back. I've done all this amazing stuff. Maybe it's time to, you know, hang it up and just enjoy doing some other stuff, enjoy the rest of my life? Or is the passion for acting just such a fire in you that you want to do it for as long as you can? I, uh, that's what I think, what you said second. Uh, I, I've enjoyed the progression, you know what I mean? And I look at myself in the mirror and say, oh, I'm getting older now. This is kind of cool. So there's a whole other kind of range of acting that I can do now that I couldn't do before. And it wouldn't be hard for me to imagine. You know, I try to keep myself in good physical health. So I kind of like the idea of being 110 years old and playing <laughs> some kind of some kind of character, you know, in a in a movie and, uh, you know, scaring somebody. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because you see all these uh, people. Uh, I don't like to use the word old. My kids think I'm old. I'm 46. I mean, you know, it's, it's subjective, but they've had these long, illustrious careers and, and accomplished so much, and well into their 70s and beyond, they're still going. They, they. So it has to me the way I reconcile that. I'm not an actor. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not in that part of the industry. Is it just has to be the passion for the work, a passion for the craft that just keeps the motivation and the energy there for you guys to keep going. And, and I got to say, the excitement of being invited onto a good project, there's, I don't see how you say no to that. It's a thrill. Yeah, somebody sends you a script and says, we'd like you to play this role, or would, even would you like to audition for this role? If I read it and say, ooh, that's juicy, there's an excitement immediately. And so not to play it seems to be a vote against life itself. Oh, never thought of it like that. Yeah. Oh, like you say yes because you go where the juice is. If you like, it's almost like refusing food. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to to starve to death. I mean, there's a point at which maybe if there's projects coming your way that aren't very interesting, you think I'd rather do something else. But in my experience... Uh, when you get a chance at anything with any bit of juice in it, you jump at it, you you drink it, man. Exactly. You hold on to it for as long as you can. Robert, 
It, Say you drink it right down to the dregs. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. Robert, I can't believe this hour has just flown by. It's been an absolute treat to talk to you. Like I said, I first saw you on the screen in Amityville 3D. I followed your career ever since back, you know, starting in 1983. I believe Amityville 3D came out. Thank you so much for agreeing to come here and share this hour with us. Our fans, our viewers enjoyed it. I know I personally cherish it. Uh, is there any projects that we should keep an eye out maybe in the future with you? Well, the one I'm in quarantine now for a really exciting uh, movie called Don't Look Up. All right. Is it a horror uh, movie? For Netflix. I'm not going to say it's a horror movie, but it does involve a threat to the whole planet. Let's put it that All way. All right. We'll keep an eye out for it. Don't look <laughs> up with Robert Joy. Robert, thank you so much again. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, till tomorrow night, guys, stay safe. Any final thoughts, Robert, you want to share? No, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you, uh, especially during this uh, pandemic, to be able to actually have a, a fun conversation with somebody I've never talked to before. Yeah, we, so we all, thank you. Thank you. And we all got to stay connected. Thank you, everybody. Till tomorrow. Good night. On behalf of Robert and myself, stay safe and stay walking. Bye-bye.